Episode 9, Introduction to Receiving Help. In this episode, Husky and Trash Panda opens up about a difficult topic for all members of our polycule, the topic of receiving help. We talk systemic level help, the everyday help we receive from our loved ones, and we speculate on our personal histories with receiving help. In this episode, we would like to warn for mentions of suicide, child neglect, substance abuse, and self-harm. This is happening to you. Now. Here. Welcome to the Petting Zoo. Everybody. Welcome to the Petting Zoo. I'm tonight's host, DP, and with me in the studio, which is our kitchen, is our wonderful nightly guest, Husky. Hello, Husky. How are you doing? Thank you, DP. Um, I'm doing all right. I just realized that it's just a greeting. You're not actually asking me how I'm doing, are you? No, I, I am. Oh. I would like to know. Okay, I'm um, fine. Yes. I'm fine. I'm doing fine. Perfect. This is not the kind of podcast where you ask a question and don't expect an answer. <laughs> we are not that kind of operation here. Anyway, tonight's topic is kind of personal and it's kind of difficult. We are going to talk about receiving help. Now, help can come in many shapes and sizes. It can be life-changing or it can be as easy as somebody running a quick errand for you. And we are going to go down that rabbit hole and kind of try to explore what receiving help is for us and how we relate to it, how we react to it. Good things, bad things, do's, don'ts, and all that. Yeah. Um... And I'm thinking that, well, this topic, I'm not actually sure how it came about, but um, it's so, it's something that comes up ever so often in this household, because we all need help sometimes. And we're all willing to help each other, but we all have a hard time taking that help. So it's sort of a thing that is like a theme, I could you could say. Yeah, it's definitely true, like... Our family is weird in the sense that we are all helpers in certain capacities. And I think we are also all burdened by not only pride, but also since we grew up neurodivergent and with our different types of life-hindering issues, we are very used to having to fend for ourselves and not very accustomed to or comfortable with receiving help. And yeah, it's uh, you're entirely correct. It is like an emerging theme over and over again. And latest it came up this morning in a conversation I had with Kat. That's like one of the reasons we are doing this specific episode right now is because it's affecting me in a very personal way and I kind of feel like I need to explore in that area a little bit and then we thought like okay why not do it on air 
Because so this podcast might be a little bit different than we what we usually do because usually we are trying to address things that we have some sort of knowledge of or that we are in some way good at and give you advice or give you our perspective on these issues and this will be a little bit different in the sense that this We're is something that this. yeah this is something <laughs> that we struggle with and we are going to openly talk about our struggles with receiving help and see if there is something coming to us that would have otherwise not come to us just because we are actually like sitting down and constructively thinking about this subject for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I guess like we could try to break it down a little bit. Like what kinds of help are we talking and like what kinds of help we might need. Um, stuff like that. Yeah, probably that's a good starting point. Let's talk about a little bit about the daily challenges that we face because that also brings us closer to yeah exactly the nature of help we need what kind of help is more comfortable what is the kind of help like i i also have it in mind to talk a little bit about how what people perceive as helpful might not actually always be helpful to a certain person because at least uh in my own experience i've i've come across this so many times where somebody is really set on to help you and they end up making a mess about it because they don't quite know what the nature of help it is that you need and then they do something and it all just blows up in flames and i feel like we are all also Except for Moose. Moose is actually really good at helping people. But, like, definitely Cat and I, and I also think Fox, to an extent, is guilty of trying to help people our own way without necessarily recognizing what is the nature of help the other person needs. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, well, I'm perfect and I have no problems, so I don't need help, but, you know... It's really hard for me to 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 even have anything to sorry um <laughs> yeah recognizing you have a problem is the first step <laughs> yeah um basically i'm gonna be talking about cats as well as my experiences tonight because i feel like tapping into cats experiences will like sort of qualify this topic a bit um, no, that also opens up a broader spectrum of experience. Yeah, basically. Because the thing about me is that I am... At least I used to be sort of the functional one. Like, when Cad was unable to do something, I would sometimes take over and do the thing that Cad couldn't do. And this was the nature of our relationship. So in that way, I started out very much as a helper in a very literal sense. Um, and now I'm sort of, as I am now more out and about, I'm coming to the realization that I have limits too. It's just that because I was like out in short bursts, I had like the energy or like the capacity to do these things. But as I like live life more, I also am to an extent consumed by the to put it bluntly, the, the, the mental illness that plagues a cat and makes it very hard for them to do stuff. 
So that means that as uh, I, I'm sort of going from being a helper to being someone who also sometimes needs help, and that's an interesting sort of journey, I suppose. No, it definitely is. And I think inadvertently, since this is our nature, and this is something that we do on like a knee-jerk reaction basis, we will end up talking about helping as well as receiving help. Oh yeah, and I think that that's fine because those yeah. two are closely connected and I think that to some extent I believe that the key in being able to accept help also lies in understanding the nature of giving help. That sounded way smarter than I am. Impressive. <laughs> Anyways, um, <laughs> so... Sorry, I'm looking for something because I want to kick this off with a very interesting kind of it's a message but it's also a diary entry from Fox that I think grabs one end of this question very well I just need to find okay so this is Fox's take on a broader subject of helping or being helped it's called the superposition of okayness Lately, I've spent an unreasonable amount of time on trying to decide whether or not I'm okay. And honestly, I think I am. The thing that gives me a headache is that apparently being okay is a commitment. It's an obligation and a responsibility because the moment you're okay, that means you're available for help, for favors, for fun. People in your life will immediately attack you with all kinds of requests, expectations, questions, not because they want to be invasive, but simply because they presume that you have the energy to deal with them as it can be expected of anyone who is currently in the state of okay. But if you're not okay, the same people will be worried about you because they care. The moment after you've declared yourself not okay, your life gets flooded by people that would do whatever it takes to make it better because they want the best for you. Although in many cases, it seems that they want the best for you only as long as you define what that is on their terms. People say it's important to have friends, it's important you relax, you have fun, go out, forget about your troubles and so on. Now on a larger scale, from an objective human point of view, these things are important. But when I look upon my life, I realize that they actually aren't. What's important is that I eat enough not to faint or to get sick, that I sleep enough, that I'm able to show up to work every day and bring the maximum out of me, that I finally graduate from college. These are the important things right now, and whatever remains of me when the day is done, to me, and to me alone, it's important that I can spend that little energy and time on keeping the rest in order, my marriage, my household, my introversion uh, craving alone time. Everything else, even basic human needs, are secondary. Now, people look at me confused, not understanding what exhausts me so greatly. After all, it's not that I'm working particularly long hours or have to commute too much. My husband and I share a small one-room apartment. There shouldn't be much cleaning to do. I have no extra activities, no clubs, no gym, no social events. So how can I be this tired? It took me a while to realize that there is no objective scale here. There is no system in which we all spend the same amount of points on the same activities, costing each and every human the same amount. And just because it shouldn't be hard or because it doesn't, uh, it isn't hard for others, that doesn't mean that it's not hard for me. And it is. My life eats up my days, my energy, the amount of shits I have left to give. 
And I don't want those around me to fix me because I'm not broken. I'm just stuck in a superposition of okayness. Yeah. I feel like this is a decent starting point because it points out something that made it very hard for us all our life to actually recognize the fact that we need help. Because if you leave me alone in a vacuum, and the same goes for Fox, apparently, and even before then, like, in our whole existence, in our whole human life, the same has applied to us, that left to our own devices, as long as we don't necessarily have to, like, do everything, we are fine. We tend to be in a good mood, we tend to be relatively stable, we tend to gravitate towards a state that is satisfactory to our needs. But at the same time, if you want us to be functional as a human being, and if you expect us to be okay in the sense that neurotypical people are okay, and to be able to do all the things, that will never be true. And those expectations kind of put us in a situation where we felt like we needed help, but whenever we tried to go to people and kind of voice some of the concerns we have towards our state of being, our energy levels, or anything, people tended to either overreact which made it even worse for us, or they tended to just brush it off because you seem fine. And yeah, I'm one of those, like, lucky-unlucky people that grew up with a relatively invisible disability. Like, up until I graduated high school, I was qualified as a perfectly normal person because I was a grade-A student, and I was reasonably okay in every other like requirement of my life. I had a sufficient number of friends. I did a sufficient number of activities. I was okay with my relationship with my parents. And as long as you are, as long as you are in high school or in primary school or middle school for that, like reason. Um, your sole purpose and responsibility, or that's what I've been told, is that I do good at school. And I did great at school. And as long as that's true, everything else, adults kind of just brush under the table. Like, they just go, like, under the carpet, sorry. That's how it's it <laughs> said. Yeah, so they just assume that, like, yeah, sure, you are, like, a little bit emotionally unstable. Yeah, sure, you are, like, a little bit weird. Yeah, sure, you are, like, kind of shy. But those things are all fine because you're a good student. And as somebody whose main problem in life is that I can only ever really focus on one thing. And not just at the moment. Not, like, I can't multitask, although I can't really do that either. But, like... On a larger scale of things, I can only set one focus point to my life. And as long as I was in school, that was school. And that was super easy because everything else was kind of cared for by others. Like my parents made sure that I have clothes to wear, that I have food to eat, that I have a relatively okay day rhythm. These things were a given. 
And the moment I graduated and I moved out uh, from my parents and I had to live on my own, I was faced with an impossible situation where I suddenly had to put all my effort and all my focus into everything. Like, an adult human life is inf- like infinitely complex. It's insane. If you are me and you are the kind of person who has to pay conscious attention to every single detail of every single action, you will find that balancing an adult life is practically impossible. Because I went to university. I had to do a full-time university. I had to have a student job because I had no means of income and no means of social support. I had to run my own household. I had to build up a new social circle because I moved to a different city where I knew practically nobody. I still had to communicate with my own family and so on and so forth. And suddenly there are like, I had to do shopping and laundry and, and had to like clean my body and I had to sleep. And these things are hard for me. Each and every one of these things overwhelms me sometimes. Yes, even going to sleep can be like a three hour massive chore. Yeah. And I'm unable to fulfill those things. And now that I know more about myself, I know more about my own brain, I know... I have spent a long time more consciously observing the way in which I interact with the world around me. And these things led me to the realization that, yeah, I have permanent limitations that I won't be able to shake off or overcome just because I want to. And here we kind of round back to, after this like long tangent, (laughs) we round back to the idea of help because at the point I did realize as an adult that probably if I want to not only have like a fulfilled and relatively successful life, but if I want to stay alive, I will have to rely on other people to help me. Yeah. And meanwhile... I would say that, well, Kat and I have similar issues, um, but we have probably, to some extent, been better at taking help, I would say. Like, uh, for example, um, Kat's mom is like uh, a social worker, basically, and uh, she would also be helping cat with like their shit like such as um kind of doing mentoring work or like uh cleaning up with them and stuff like that and cat was kind of able to take this but it's also very much the case that that's that's also the extent of it like cat and their mom has have like a special relationship and they're kind of mutually helpful relationship in a way but yeah and honestly the two of them like from my perspective the two of them are insanely close like uncomfortably close which is uncomfortable for me because i'm not that close with my own parents but it's also a very desirable state it's not like it doesn't seem unhealthy it seems extremely good yeah and that's that was a thing and actually now to speak about receiving help. So, um, Kat went into psychiatry 
not as a psychologist, but as a patient. <laughs> and um, and this was one of the things that they actually wrote down in the journal was that uh, they're not happy about getting help. They don't want to receive help. I've tried to talk them into receiving help. And slowly, Kat started to receive more help. Like they uh, they got a mentor at university and uh, they uh, they started to take medicine for some of their um, issues. So slowly they did sort of start to accept this type of help. But then um, the psychiatric place was like, okay, so how about like a living support person? This is, I don't know exactly what to call this in English, but we basically, in our country, we have a system where you can get someone from the municipality, like uh, a pedagogue or a social worker or someone, and they come to your house and they help you out. Yeah, it's kind of assisted living, except for the fact that you don't live in a facility where there are social workers tending to the patients. There are those like group homes and, and such arrangements as well, but we have like a looser system based on the communal network, um, where you can apply for a caseworker who would essentially help you with daily life related challenges. Yeah. And uh, I was offered, or Kat, in fact, was offered this, and they flatly refused. And I think there were several reasons for this, but like one thing is that just the idea of a stranger coming into your home and telling you what to do was too much, because... When Kat's mom would come, it was basically, and this does not paint Kat in a good light, but it was basically Kat lying on the sofa whining while their mom ran around and cleaned the apartment. And this is not because, it's not really because Kat is a horrible person who takes advantage of their mom. It is that, especially at this point in their life, they were so overwhelmed with everything that they just did not have the energy or the capacity to do or even help to clean up. So, the thought of someone coming and, like, sort of help to self-help, which is, like, the ideal in most of these institutions, was just too much at this point in their life. Um, but now, actually, Kat is considering applying for one of these. And uh, one of the reasons is that um, Fox and TP now have a social worker of this type. And it's actually an interesting prospect. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically, this is a relatively new development in my life where we are getting systemic level help. And this is like a big, scary thing for somebody, and we will get back to this a little bit later when we talk about like the difficulties of getting help. But yeah, as of now, I have this lovely woman who... Basically, uh, I got into a program. I was in psychiatry last year where I got my diagnoses. And I also want to like get back to that at a later point. But that ended um, after a couple months. And they basically referred to 
referred me to what I would qualify as a social rehabilitation program. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively intensive program where you get a mentor who is a social worker, and for 12 weeks, they are at your service at basically as much as you want slash need it. And that means that there is this lovely woman who sometimes comes to my home, sometimes I go to uh, her office, and we talk about how to, what to put it this way, how to unfuck my life. And I was horrified of this, but I also kind of felt like I owe myself and I owe my family that I at least try. And so far it's working great. Right now it's kind of annoyingly cut in half because of the whole coronavirus lockdown thing, because that's happening now. Right now our entire country is basically at the standstill, so we are no longer allowed to meet. But I'm still like communicating with her over the phone and over FaceTime. I do the same with my therapist, whom I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and it's... One thing that amuses me in this whole thing is, first of all, it kind of forces me in a situation where I have to tell her when I had enough. And that's not something I'm used to do. I'm used to toughing it out for as long as I need to and then collapsing. Mm -hmm. That's basically one of my coping techniques. I just... Because I can usually pass as a relatively okay normal person, I usually do that in out and about situations and then I just crash at home. But since she is in my home and she sees the horrifying, shameful mess that I live in, and she sees me in situations where I'm falling apart because I needed, because I just did things for two hours that are super hard. And by the end of the two hours, she has seen me semi-madam. She has seen me non-verbally stare into a wall because I did not have the energy to say goodbye to her. She had seen me semi-sleepwalk because I was just dissociated to such a mess that I no longer recognize myself in the mirror. Like, she sees me in situations that I would normally not show to another human being. And in this whole experience, I've never gotten anything but kindness and compassion from her. Probably because she's an awesome human being and also because this is literally her job and she has probably seen worse than anything I can bring on. She seems entirely unfazed by any of this. Like if she sees me fall apart, she's just like, okay, apparently we are done today. Okay, see you next time. And she just walks out without a blank. And I love that because that's exactly the kind of help I can accept her not making a big deal about me being symptomatic, her not making a big deal about me being weird or me being unable to do something or sometimes hold up an agreement we made with each other. Just that kind of safe, secure, non-judgmental type of help is something I've never really experienced from a professional before. And that kind of changed my entire mentality about the whole getting help with the capital H thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess that that's probably the main reason why Kat and I are considering this as well, because like you've had a good experience with that. Well, actually, so Kat is getting help through the system in a different way. 
uh, they go to um, these weekly or bi-weekly uh, uh, conversations with a contact person in the team for schizophrenia at the hospital. So it's like an um, outpatient program, basically. And, and this is very good for them. Like, it's not life-changing, but it's like, it's something that keeps them afloat. And it's, it means that they have someone on their side in psychiatry. For example, uh, Kat and I get um, Concerta, which is like... It's um, a medication for ADHD. Yeah, it's an ADHD medication. Um, and it was actually quite hard to be allowed to get this because at least in our country, if you also have a psychotic disorder, they're not very happy about giving you central stimulants. Um, so this was kind of a struggle, but the, it was always clear that the contact person was just interested in helping us and like figuring out how to get the, the doctors to agree to try this. And that was like a nice attitude to be met with. Um, and especially because when CAD went there first, they were basically quite uh, much in denial about the fact that they even were psychotic or had schizophrenia or whatever. And the contact person that they met there was just like, well, you know what? Like, I don't really care if you have schizophrenia or not. Like, you got that label, which means you're now on my table. But I just care about who you are and what your troubles are and like how I can help you with those. And that attitude really helped um, Cat like sort of take that help because if they had told them, well, I'm here to help you cure uh, this disorder that you don't think you have, you know, like it would not have gone yeah. over well. And I just want to give like a huge shout out to every single social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist out there who have this kind of attitude towards people because I think we both have been met with a very different experience as well and they are both life-changing in very different ways. One in a very positive way that pushes you towards a better future and one in a very destructive and negative way. I was debating this but basically I'm going to quickly talk about this for a second because that was one of those moments of my life that stuck with me and in a weird way I think it actually pushed me into a very positive spiral afterwards I just did not see that at the moment so um about one and a half years ago I think or so I was getting very bad with depression and anxiety and I went to my uh general practitioner who prescribed me some medication for depression and anxiety and I started taking that and for a while it worked great and then I stopped working after a while after a couple months so my new GP just suggested that we up my dosage because maybe my system has just gotten used to it and maybe a higher dose would work which was a reasonable suggestion so I started taking a higher dose and I reacted very poorly to it because it while it did not help with either the anxiety or the depression it sedated me to the point where 
by last summer I was sleeping 18 hours a day and my baseline functionality was being able to get out of bed, maybe walking down with the garbage to the end of the driveway and back. And that took so much energy out of me that I had to take a nap after every single one of these like little adventures. And that was a horrible way of living. And I was... Well, guess what? I was getting more depressed because I could not do anything and I felt my mental faculties deteriorating and I felt like I could no longer hold a line of thought in my head. So I couldn't even really like just dive into my little internal universe that I would normally do in these occasions. So it was, it was a very bad way of doing. And for some reason, and I don't, quite remember why this was not on the table at the moment but I I couldn't dose down so I just kept taking it and kept getting worse and worse and by I think July last year I've gotten to a break point where after a longer period of like being alone and like kind of spiraling out of control I ended up Uh, at the hospital one night because I was deemed a suicide risk. And, well, disclaimer, I was a suicide risk at this point. Um, But after having spent the night at the hospital alone, and this was at the time when Moose was away on his yearly volunteer trip, and Cat was somewhere unavailable... So basically, nobody could come to get me. I was alone at the hospital, and I'm terrified of hospitals. I fear everything that has to do with doctors or hospitals or medical equipment. I have like a phobia-level fear of these things. So being alone in a hospital was kind of a big deal for me. And after having spent the night there, I was uh, in a chat conversation talking to the family, and I asked them what to do. And they were like, well, maybe this is the correct time for you to get your way into the system and maybe this is the correct time for you to just, they will come to evaluate you later. So how about you just tell them, tell them about the ID, which was not out there at that point. Tell them about your struggles, tell them about everything. And I was so out of it and I was so desperate that I was like, you know what? Sure, let's do this. And the woman came in and at this point Bear was going to come to get me because they were the only one that was actually physically close enough that they could get me when they released me. And they asked if I wanted them to be there at this conversation. And I initially said yes, but then uh, the woman came a little bit earlier than expected and I, I was too shy to say, please wait for my friend to get here. So I was just like, yeah, sure, I can do this alone. And I started talking... And then I kind of just broke down and I ended up pouring out everything and I was crying and I was begging this woman to help me to just do whatever because I couldn't go on and I couldn't live like this anymore. And she was, well, more concerned with the fact that I have not told about these issues to my GP. So I was probably mismedicated and she kind of made it out to be entirely my own fault yeah that this is something i've gotten myself into and i remember specifically her saying the sentence and this sentence has pushed me so far in both directions she looked at me and she said 
there is so much help out there for you to get. You just have to work for it. And at that point, I just broke down and I tried to tell her that I have no more work left in me. I've given all the work I could and I could not save myself and I just needed somebody to save me. And she was not having any of that. So in the end, she just made a snarky comment about, so what am I supposed to be worried that you are going to just like go out of the hospital and just like drown yourself in the sea again? And I'm like, no, you know what? You don't need to be worried about anything. Like, I'll take care of this. I'm going to be fine. And then I got released and Bear was there. And at this point, without wanting to sound dramatic, I'm really fucking happy that Bear was there because otherwise I would not have made it out of the parking lot of that hospital before I found like a bus or something to jump in front of. But Bear was there and they took me home and then later Cat showed up and they brought me home to my actual home and my family took care of me. And then later, this is actually the moment that started that entire chain of events that ended up in me getting into actual psychiatry and coming out to my GP who was really nice about it. And then in psychiatry, all the doctors and we had like a nurse that was consulting us every two weeks. She was amazing. I just call her the nice woman because she was like insanely nice to me. And that got me into the whole social rehabilitation program where now I have the opportunity to later on probably apply for permanent um, assisted living, which if that is an actual option, I will go for that because what I realized today is that I can't, I can't just will my way out of this. It's not going to happen. I can't will my way out of the idea. I can't will my way out of autism. I can't will my way out of depression. It's not going to be that simple. And that if I actually want to be good for my family, if I actually want to create an environment where we can all flourish and where we can all be on the path of recovery together, my responsibility in the story is to get the help that I can get. So that's what I'm intending to do. And that's like really cool. (laughs) No, it is because I know that it's very hard for you to take that help. It is honestly kind of dreamy Mm -hmm. in a way that it's so uncharacteristic and it's so alien that it's kind of like, I'm kind of just rolling with it at this point because I'm way past the point where I can actually emotionally relate to any of these experiences. Yeah. And that's... That's the thing about help, I guess. I kind of know why I'm the way I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, I think one of the reasons why I have such a hard time with taking help is because there was a specific moment in my life when I was about 12, by which time it was glaringly obvious that I needed help. And I was in an environment where... Well, help was not granted. And I kind of feel like there were so many adults that were there to care for these children. I was in a boarding school. And 
I was unraveling faster than I could even like think about how much I'm unraveling. And I was obviously at a risk. Like I was, I've lost over 20 kilos in a span of a couple months. I was not eating. I was throwing up all the time. I was full of fresh cuts every day. I was abusing alcohol, prescription medication, non-prescription medication, anything that I could get my hands on. And I was 12 at this point. And I'm just standing here looking back and I find it impossible that none of these adults have noticed anything. Which leaves the only logical conclusion is that these adults, for some unknown reason, elected not to help. And that prospect, looking back from a grown-up point of view, terrifies me. Because I was very close to dying at that point, and if my parents did not do an emergency pickup because of a completely unrelated thing that happened and that landed me in psychiatry for the first time, if that random event does did not come at that point, I would be dead. That was the first time when I'm absolutely certain that I would be dead today. Because yeah. you can only try suicide so and so many times until you succeed. And that whole experience kind of affirmed me that nobody gives a shit and that nobody wants to help. And the psychiatry in my home country is not stellar, so that wasn't a particularly good experience and I like got into trouble and I got abused at the hospital and like there was bad things happening and after that I think my parents tried. I I honestly think they did try to help me, but my parents were most likely not equipped to deal with the problems of somebody who had certain special needs. And I was unable to voice these needs. And basically that landed me in a state of isolation where I had to pretend that I was fine. And there is a lot of pressure coming from my parents that they didn't mean as pressure. But still, the way my parents are and the way their relationship to me is as their only child as and as a couple that can't have other children. That placed an enormous amount of pressure on me as a child to be the perfect child because mm-hmm. I'm literally the only choice they have. My father at that point lost three daughters. My mom wasn't able to have another child. They were clinging to me like dear life itself because I was the child. I could not be defect. I could not be problematic. It's just not something you do to your parents. So I kind of learned that I was su- that I was supposed to shut up and be perfect. And while I could not be perfect, I could shut up and I was functional enough for a while that I could put on this veneer of okayness. Which later resulted in me collapsing as an adult, because the moment nobody can see me, I collapse. Mm-hmm. And actually moving to Scandinavia and meeting a society here and meeting a different standard of life and meeting a different attitude towards mental illness, towards disability, 
and the nurturing environment with friends and family that actually accept me for whatever I am, that was a life changer and that is an ongoing life changer that I'm still not used to and I'm still not quite there. I'm still not quite at the point where I can just... I can... I have worked very hard on being able to accept help and I feel like I have made enormous steps towards being able to reveal my need for help and then accept help for that. But I'm still unable to ask directly for help. Like I have to be suicidal in a hospital, kind of desperate for me to utter the words, please help me. Yeah. And I think that... In a weird sense, in a way less dramatic sense, that's kind of our story as well. That, like, we were also very much overlooked in a way as a kid with certain issues. (laughs) And, but the other thing is that, like, Kat never wanted to ask for help and they never wanted to voice anything because they were always trying to protect their mother in in particular because there was the whole... So... The the childhood home was not completely unproblematic and that meant that there was a lot of... Like Kat's mom was a vulnerable figure in a way in, in that home and... I guess that, but also a strong figure. It's complicated, but now we both have strong but vulnerable mothers. Yeah, and basically, that sort of creates a situation where the child doesn't want to bring trouble to her doorstep because she's troubled enough, and you're trying to protect her. But later, of course. Um, as Kat's mom has realized some of the things that went under the radar when Kat was a child, she's like, she's devastated about that. Because she wanted to be the strong one, obviously. I think any mother in the end wants to be the strong one and they want to be there for their child and they don't want their child to be uh, hiding things from them. But it's just the nature of children and especially in these environments where they feel that they have to protect their parents because... I guess, like, if you see your parents cry too many times, it just... Yeah, I can't, I still today can't handle my mom crying. Yeah. It's not a thing. And and this is, like, that is a weirdly, I don't know if traumatic is the correct word, but it's a very painful thing to experience. Yeah. And I think that, like, Kat always felt that they were the protector, in a way, and... And they were trying to protect their mom, but like, probably looking back, they were making everything worse, but that's what kids do. Yeah, exactly. Also, that's such an interesting point. Like, I had this discussion with my therapist the other day, um, because she raised the question my parents don't know anything about my mental health diagnoses like my mom is privy to the fact that I was taking antidepressants at a point and she like I have been struggling with depressive issues that she obviously knows that and she knows that as like a teenager I had some sort of issues but she's not really in the know about mental health in general 
So, since um, DID fully formed came on after we moved out, she never really faced that. And she has no idea about like any of my formal diagnoses. And my therapist asked me, like, don't you think it would be a good idea to tell your mother? And I had to explain to her that this can never happen. And this can never happen simply because my mom is a really smart person. And she has a very strong sense of logic. If I break it to her like, yeah, mom, you know how dad and I are kind of weird in certain ways and that we are like kind of socially inept and my dad has like really weird like rigid routines that he can't really diverge from and he gets like really bad if he's around a lot of people and he's kind of weird with emotions yeah and I'm I'm the same way you know you know that thing has a name it's called autism and yeah I strongly suspect that we both have it if I break that to my mom It will take her approximately five minutes to wrap her head around that. And then the next step will be she will piece it together every single way she had failed me as a child. And I can't do that to her. Because she will realize the needs that weren't met. She will realize the troubles that I had to go through alone. She will realize all the pain and all the... like basically impossible expectations that they and my extended family and like society has placed on me and they will destroy her and I can't do that to her yeah like at this point it would be literally like looking her in the face and going like you have failed me and I'm not willing to do that to my mom and I think it's interesting that Kat did do this well, when Kat's mom says, oh no, maybe I failed you, Kat always says, no, 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 you didn't. But but it's also been addressed several times that Kat's mom has failed them in several ways. For instance, by marrying a guy who is an asshole <laughs> and staying with him, despite him being an asshole. Um, and... Well, by not being willing to um, have Kat talk to, for example, a psychologist or someone as a child because she had her own issues with psychiatry and psychology. And these sort of things sort of accumulate to the point where, yes, you could argue that in many ways Kat's mom has failed them. But I think the fact that this is sort of on the table and spoken about means that it's sort of water under the bridge. No, it seems that way. It's not like, I mean, certainly Kat does not hold against their mother. And of course the, the mom is like sad about it, but she's also not the type to like dwell in that sense of the word. Also, I think in a way for her to see that you guys ended up having a great academic career despite of all your issues, that you ended up having a loving, supporting family of your own, that you ended up in great relationships that work out for you, that you 
are basically moving forward with your life and in any sense of the word that matters, you are a success in your life, that kind of eases her mind as well. Like, she couldn't have fucked up that badly because you turned out fine. Yeah, yes and no, you know, like, as as someone, as a mother who's had to come for two years every week to clean up after their child, I guess she's aware that we're not completely fine, but she also, like, sort of, Actually, an interesting thing is that now she also sort of is starting to realize that she is probably not completely fine either. And that certainly helps a lot that there's like they have a community about it or like an an understanding of each other. And like Kat understands or I understand why mom acted the way she did. And, And that's just how it is. Yeah. Like, so. like, Kat's mom is a very, um, she's a sort of naive person, you know? And also, like, very, uh... I don't know her well enough to be able to assess that. Like, she's lovely. She's lovely in 20 different ways. I don't know if she's naive. She's kind of naive, but she's, like, the type who chooses to be naive. Because, like, she's been in horrible situations. People have done horrible things to her, but she chooses to stay positive and always expect the best from people. I don't think that's naivety. I think that's strength. That's an enormous strength and a very hard and conscious choice to make. Yeah, and it's interesting. And it's like sort of the contrast between Kat and their mom because Kat is very paranoid about everyone and everything. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, it's a different topic, but it's interesting. By the way, just throwing this out there, and guys, please tell us on Tumblr whether or not you want us to talk about this. We could have a bring your parents issues to school day. (laughs) Because I kind of feel like all of us have parents that would be a field trip for us to talk about. Yeah, I can't think of anyone in this podcast who does not. (laughs) Yeah, so we could bring in generations of issues and analyze how our parents fucked us up because they are fucked up. Um, yeah, but back to the topic of receiving help, and now I kind of want to round back to, now we've talked a bit about systemic help, but that's also the sort of day-to-day help of, like, helping each other go through daily life, you know? And I think that that's, like, for us, that's a very interesting new thing, because Kat and I have never really received help in a sort of day-to-day setting i don't think any of us has actually moose lived alone he was wasting away in a dorm room not being able to go outside to buy food and like being at least 20 kilos under what he is today before they met fox yeah that was just a thing like moose was dying yeah fox was dying i didn't even exist at that point (laughs) or i did but i was like deep dormant at that point you guys were kind of wasting away except for the fact that your mom kind of kept you alive like i don't think any of us is particularly used to being helped on a just kindness of your heart way yeah but i think that the the 
thing I was thinking of was that by the time that Kat met you guys, you had been together for a while. So I guess that you were kind of used to helping each other, or to some extent receiving help from each other. But... So to Kat, that was like a really strangely nurturing environment to get into. That's not entirely true. Kat, of course, has Bear. And Bear is also very helpful and very nurturing in their own way, but they are also like very... Also not hands-off is also not the correct term, but they're not consistently there. Because they have like social um, limitations. Limitations, basically, like they 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 get tired. Um, and then there was Tiger, and Tiger was sort of both a help and a massive source of anxiety. So that was kind of yeah a mess. Um, so this kind of unconditional help was like new and foreign, and yeah. Yeah, and I guess in a way, sure, by Moose, both Fox and I were kind of conditioned to be able to receive help. But that was also a very different story, especially for me, because Moose was my first human. And Moose was the person that was there from the moment I popped into existence. And for the first half year of my life, I didn't really interact with anybody else, because we... At that point, we were in a very special situation physically, so we could afford just being the two of us all the time, living together without ever going outside, ever talking to anybody else, ever interacting with any other human being. And to me, Moose is my lifeline. Like, to me, he's kind of my person in a very direct sense of the word so getting help from moose is almost like helping myself like my brain accepts him as a part of my entity Mm -hmm. and in that sense my relationship with cat is very special because they were kind of the first person outside of my bubble with moose that actually made it inside Mm-hmm. Like right now, the, the reason why I can live together with you guys is because basically in a weird kind of abstract sense of the word, you are part of me. Mm-hmm. All of you here are parts of me because I could not exist around human beings that are not in a way or fashion a part of me. Like it's yeah. too much. I, I'm not good with people. I'm not good with like... We just talked about this. I'm horrible with house guests because they scare the fuck out of me and they stress the fuck out of me. And the fact that you guys don't and that being with you doesn't actively drain me from energy means that you are kind of a part of me. You're just a way more independent, externalized part of me. (laughs) I guess that's one way to look at it. One way to get around the idea that you can't receive help is to just include all the people that you want to receive help from as external parts of your being. Yeah, but even with you guys, like, it took a while. It took a while until we were mutually comfortable with showing weakness because it's just not in our nature to do so. Yeah. And I remember, like, Kat talked about this at the point, how it's a blessing and a curse because they are very guarded about showing symptoms around other people and that 
in a way, it's good for them that there is always somebody around because it kind of keeps them afloat and it kind of keeps them in check so they can't, like, spiral too badly. But at the same time, it at that point, I don't know how it is now, but it, at that point, there was still, like, kind of a pressure mm-hmm. because there is people around so they can't just be, like, completely out of it. Yeah. I think at this point, we are nearing or have reached the point where we are so deep in. Like, we live together 24-7 and most of us are home almost permanently. Like, especially Kat and I are almost always home. Which means it becomes inevitable that, yeah, the other person will see you mad down. The other person will see you cry. The other person will see you being... Insert the kind of symptom you don't like to show in front of other people... And it's just part of life, and we deal with it. Yeah. I'm not particularly happy about people seeing me kind of throw myself on the floor and scream because the sunshine hurts. It happens time to time. Cat is not particularly comfortable with, like, being in different, like, various forms of psychosis. It also happens. And Moose is just a fucking piece of rock. Like, Moose... Moose is symptomatic in a way less flashy way, so we tend to overlook his problems, I feel like. Yeah. Because Moose just gets quiet. And he doesn't sleep, but we can't see that because we are sleeping. And he, like, overeats, but he does it in a kind of sneaky way. And sometimes I realize that, yeah, we kept alcohol in the home, so Moose is now drunk 24-7. But these things tend to fly under the radar because he's he's our rock. He has always been our rock. And I kind of, time to time, it comes to me as a realization how he probably needs more taking care of than what we provide because he, of all of us, he's the worst at taking help. Yeah. And that's sort of... Also- like he's actively fighting it. We We usually just begrudgingly take it he's actively fighting it yeah and that's stupid because at the same time he's the one that helps the most everybody like kind of unconditionally kind of without asking he just helps people that's what he does and in a way i kind of feel like in a way he actually has a grudge against the whole world because he wishes for the help but he can't take it and it's just this stupid stupid cycle where he's not taking care of himself he doesn't let others take care of him but he also kind of hates the fact that nobody is taking care of him it's an issue we will unravel at a point right now we are kind of at a loss about what to do that being said let me just point out that he's also making a progress he's making a beautiful beautiful progress in this that I can see and recognize, and I'm so proud of him. But when it comes to taking help, Moose is definitely in the baby shoes. Yeah. And... And he's not here to defend himself. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, but to be fair, I can quote Moose on this. His response would be like, nah, it's fine. With exactly this intonation. I may have lived with him for too long. (laughs) I'll just get him to to say it into the mic later and just clip it in. Yeah, see, cut it in. <laughs> just <laughs> as people, a comparison, people will be really impressed that like. 
No, I'll just cut it in when you said it, oh. just with his voice. <laughs> and be like, damn, you're good at impersonating voices. Right? Oh my god, we are on radio. We can do all the things. Sorry, tangent over. <laughs> yes. Um. Okay, do we have anything else? About receiving help, well... I I kind of feel like we could talk for about five more hours about different aspects of receiving help. And this might actually turn into a series. Yeah. But for now, I think this was Enter Help by the Petting Zoo. Thank you for listening as always. And good night. Good night.